Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. 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 I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Are you ready to get down with some D&D? I know I am, and I am joined, as I am always joined, by the mighty, motivated, and meticulous Mad Wizard Merwin. What is up, Sean? Yeah, I I, I would say I'm all three of those today. But we're, we're, mm-hmm. we're going to go with that. Definitely been meticulous. Uh, and I can't remember what the other one was. But yes, we're going to go with yes, Chris. It was motivated. Yes, I, pretty sure. I am definitely that. It was mighty, motivated. Meticulous. Yeah, I am so motivated that I forgot uh, that you said motivated. That's how motivated I am. <laughs> You've already moved past it and gone on to the next thing, right? Is that how that goes? You know it. Um, so, let's see. What are we talking about today? Oh, we're talking about teaching the game. We're going to talk about how, uh, like teaching D&D. Uh, and we'll get to that later. But before we get to that, we're going to do some announcements. Where are we going first with those announcements? Let's go to Dragon Talk where today they released the audio of their interview with Claudio Pausas and Teo Sabadia, two people that we are familiar with who I have talked about in the past. Mm, that is, yeah, I, we all love Teos, by the way. He's great. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Claudio is a very uh, famous artist for D&D. Uh, he's work, done quite a bit of work. I think he worked a lot on 4th edition, uh, but you, if you see work he has done, you will say, oh, yes, I know that work. And both he and Teos have connections to uh, Latin America. Uh, Claudio is from Latin America, and Teos grew up uh, in Latin America in Colombia. So they talked with both of them uh, about their careers in D&D and in gaming so far, and kind of how they got started, what Latin America has meant to to their careers, and what they're doing currently. So it's pretty a pretty interesting interview, so give that a listen if you have the time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, who doesn't love, you know, talking? I mean, both these guys. Who doesn't want to listen to both these guys? So, yeah, I agree with you completely. Go listen to it. Yep. So let's talk about fighting dirty, cinematic combat stunts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been talking about all the great articles that are going up on D&D Beyond. And the most recent one by James Hake talks about cinematic combat stunts. And what he means by this is things that people might do in combat to get some sort of advantage outside of the normal rules. So, and the example he uses, the main example of a house rule that he uses is called a combat stunt. This is an action, or if you have multiple attacks, maybe um, in place of a single attack, where you make a DC 15 ability check of some sort, you propose the ability, describe the skill proficiency you want to use, make the check. If you make the check, you can make a single weapon attack or stealth check with advantage. If you fail the check, however, you waste this action. So basically, it is just a a house rule that you try to do something tricky to get an advantage, but if you fail, you've wasted that action. Um, Very specific combat stunts he talks about are things like climb foe, dazzling flourish, ensnaring lasso, evasive roll, ricochet shot, and so on. Um, If you go through, there's a big long list of them, and they each have a very specific outcome. And why I mention these is because I think they're very cool. They, Speaking of teaching the rules, um, these are things that players who are basically first coming to D&D often say, I want to try blank. 
and there really is no rule for that so you end up having to do something on the fly and this combat stunt uh, house rule that James introduces is actually a really neat way to handle it um, I like especially that you get to the point where you say yes there's a benefit if you make it but there's a consequence if you fail so yeah. it's not just something that oh you try it you didn't make it oh, okay whatever no this is because you tried it and failed you can narrate an in-game consequence but within the rules there is a another consequence which is your action fails and you wasted it um, so i like that there's that penalty the problem i see with something like this is when i've seen other dms try to come up with these things they often become too powerful or they steal the thunder of some class ability from a different class so what you're doing is basically just giving characters for free uh, powerful abilities that are the bailiwick of some other class and so that's why you will sometimes see players or dms shy away from something like this because you know they're trying to the, the players trying to do a trick that's actually a feat that other people had to spend an actual feat on to be able mm -hmm. to do and the dm is just letting players use it for free um, so that's something you have to look out for and I think the way James sets up this house rule it's a it's a pretty good way to do things that aren't overly powerful and aren't stealing from other classes but still uh, letting players do something cool a way to mitigate this completely is rather than just allowing these combat stunts all the time when you're as a DM are creating your encounters put things in there that are combat stunts on a per encounter basis so because the weather is rainy and it's muddy you might allow a player or a character to slide underneath the um, the enemy and get past them it's not going to be something they can do every combat but because of this particular situation it's something that you'll allow now this what this does is it contains um, the power of these combat stunts and allows them to be important to the story and important to the game without being overused I actually I actually love everything about this thing because it creates a uh, it's really good for um, playing theater of the mind D&D Mm -hmm. It's also good for playing grid-based D&D, too, but what it does, especially if you decide to, like, really get into it, is, like, like you can't really do one of these things unless you describe what you've just done, right? Yes. Like, you, you actually have to say, I'm a... Yep. So, so you actually have to state, like, what you're doing. So that's going to create narrative, which is always fun, I think. Um, I think this, this, this thing is not anywhere near as powerful as pretty much any feat in the game, because feats are... For, redonkulous in my opinion in, in, in Dungeons and Dragons now because they're supposed to simulate you know getting a plus one bonus to a whole bunch of things at this point um, I mean they give you a plus one bonus to two things usually right and then if you're playing with feet you can just take a feat and if you're if you're a human it's really substituting for four six plus one bonuses <laughs> yeah the, the only the only thing that I can see it being abused with on a regular basis is the fact that if you make this check get advantage on your your attack rogues mm -hmm. and people that have sneak attack can uh kind of 
power game this so that they are always getting advantage and therefore always having a sneak attack or at higher levels where if you have advantage and you hit you automatically crit you know in in, in areas like that that's where you have to look out for it so as the dm all you really have to do then is make it so the ability check isn't something that a character knows they're going to hit every time i'm going to use acrobatics to tumble around my opponent to confuse him and therefore get advantage um, oh look i even if i roll a one i end up with a dc with a 16 so i always make it so therefore i always have um, advantage yeah, my, uh, my one problem with the whole write-up is the fact that it's a DC 15 ability check uh, for what it does. Mm -hmm. That that number should be DC whatever the game master decides, yep. whatever the dungeon master decides. And and personally, the way that I would put it together was like it would always be escalating the more that you, um, the more that you fight. Because as soon as you start, you know, pulling off stunts to your opponents, and it depends on your opponent too, but... You know, your opponents should um, sort of understand your fighting style after a little while. Also, it could be situational, like the DC just goes up a lot in certain ways. Like, well, that thing that you wanted to do in this situation, it's actually really hard. I mean, that's why we have that chart for DCs for like 15, 20, 25, what they actually mean. Right. Yeah. And, and James even talks about, um, you know, only being able to use it once per short rest or once per long rest against certain enemies and so on. Um but, you know, like, like you said, it's really cool. It can be narrative-focused and get the players into actually narrating, you know, their, their combats, which, which for most people is great. You just have to keep an eye on it being misused by players. That's all. Yeah, it's because there's a bunch of... Because when you start saying advantage, like you said before... I, I, I was with you. I was completely with you when you were like... The, the problem with that is, like, advantage interacts with, interacts with a bunch of other mechanics. Mm -hmm. And then this makes it easy to to garner advantage, but there's plenty of easy ways to garner advantage, but this makes it individually easy to get advantage in a lot of ways, yep. which can then be problematic. Absolutely. So overall, James... It's really good for a hack, good. though. Oh, yeah, I love it. I mean, if I, I, if I was going to write... If I was going to put together a, um, like a, a more roguish where kind of like everybody's playing rogues or fighters and things like that, like... And, and I took magic or went to a low magic setting, I think I would really want this rule in my game or some variation on this rule. Mm -hmm. and, and it can even be something where you can just let your players know ahead of time. If you want to try something cool, go for it. You don't have to formalize it. You can just uh, you know, run it off the cuff and let the players be the ones that drive it rather than adding another set of rules to drive it. Uh, but you yeah, know, as a rule of thumb, I agree with I that too. Yeah. I, I just keep thinking, see, now that we're talking about it, I just want to talk about it for a second. Like, I'm, I, I agree with you, because I've always been doing that anyway. Like, when people do cool things in, in narrative or whatnot that are that I can find some sort of risk versus reward where I can set stakes, mm -hmm. like, then I usually make people, let people make the rule. Um, there's, no, there's no formalized version of that rule, though, right? Like, it's always just been calls by the game master, yep. the dungeon master. I mean... One of the things about Dungeons and Dragons is the way the the current rule set is constructed is that it is very much geared for high magic play, mm -hmm. like, and I don't mean high magic as in high level magic. I mean there's just lots of magic, right? Like almost every class in the game has a way to get access to magic spells. Mm -hmm. Pretty sure that's actually true, except yeah. for maybe the barbarian. Well, even a, even a feat, you could just take the a feat that gives you cantrips. Yeah, but even like just the base classes themselves all have ways or paths that they can become spellcasters. Oh, right, sure. 
Yeah. So, like, the game is designed around this whole magical resource um, play. So, like, when... And I've been looking at it a lot lately. Like, how do you really pull off low magic D&D with... You have to kind of just hack the game a bunch. Because there's not a bunch of rules that do that stuff very well uh, yet. This is this is a rule or a base for a rule set or idea for a rule set where it is more more like this. Um, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna go off game for a second. I'm sorry, this is just a fascinating topic to me. We should probably talk about it at some other point in time um, when talking about hacking D and D. Uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics, the fighter in that game doesn't have feats anymore. It just has one thing called combat stunt like this. I kind of wonder if that's where Hake got this idea from, where like. You just sort of say the kind of stunt that you're doing, and there's like a thing that you have to roll, and if you do it, then you do it, mm-hmm. and then it's on the game master because it's OSR style play, which means it's more rulings, not rules. Mm-hmm. So uh, I I just wonder like where is that is that is that a rule kind of set that can be applied to fifth edition D and D, especially if you want to go with low magic. Well, I would say that this answers the question. It sure can. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on. What's next? All right, um, so Bald Man Games who create convention created content adventures and run them at the big shows like origins and gen con and winter fantasy are now starting to put these trilogies up on the dms guild for you to purchase and run for your adventures league play so the trilogy that just went up are three adventures the first is the spectral incursion by john rogers the second is the ghostly infestation by dan Dillon, and the final one in the trilogy is the spirited investigation by Tom the Dungeon Bastard Lamel. So this trilogy ran at Gen Con last year, um, but it, and it re-ran at Winter Fantasy, but it is now up. And it looks at the city of Melvant. There is a gate just outside the city. Chris, you're familiar with this adventure because you destroyed the city of Melvant in your adventure. Or should I, I, I say... didn't destroy it. I was, I was told to. Right. So are the player actions within the running of your adventure led to the destruction of a good part of Malvant, but it is being rebuilt. And in this trilogy, the gate, the planar gate that's outside the city opens and lets a bunch of spectral undead through. The yeah. players need to first deal with the immediate threat, then find out what is happening within the city because of this spectral invasion. And finally, they must go to a strange and unique party to hunt down the person who is behind this spectral infestation. So we, the link is in the show notes if you would like to grab those adventures and run them for your Adventures League game. That sounds pretty awesome. Um, all right, let's talk about Dragon Plus issue 19. When you folks hear this, it might not be out yet, but we're pretty sure it's going to be out. Uh, Sean, what, what's going on with Dragon Plus issue 19? So Dragon Plush issue 19 is not up yet, so I have not read the entire thing, but I wanted to let people know that I am going to be picking up and running with the best of the DMs Guild column that you have seen in previous editions. So what I'm going to be doing is looking at a bunch of different content from the DMs Guild, picking out interesting ones, especially ones that I think teach interesting lessons that the contributors, contributors including me, might learn from. Um, so uh, you know, I'll be looking at adventures and rules crunch and a whole bunch of other things just to say, hey, I think this is cool, and this is why, and this is the lesson we can learn uh, from from this particular product. Very cool. I look forward to reading that. Me I'll, too. I'll <laughs> checking it out. Uh, so now let's talk about our main topic for the day, which is we're going to talk about teaching the rules. 
So, Sean, uh, you wrote this lovely intro, so why don't you lead us into it? Yeah. So one of the most rewarding things for me, but also one of the most frustrating things in my past of D&D teaching, is that teaching new players is an incredible experience, but it's fraught with peril. Um, there's nothing as exciting as seeing the fires of the imagination of new players catch and them just wanting to play more and coming back and loving the game. However, I have seen people just as turned off by the game for years or forever when those initial experiences they have are not just bad, but overwhelmingly negative. So today what Chris and I are going to do is take a look at the best ways to teach new players with an emphasis on noting and discussing some of the potential pitfalls or some of the tough choices you might have to make when you take on the task of teaching a new player. All right, let's, uh, let's get into it. So first thing, uh, pregens versus character creation. So like, like you mentioned, there's only one chance to make a first impression. So for you know some people, playing immediately without really getting what's going on with the rules or the characters is okay because the experience is really what they want. That's, that's the thing that they're there for. Um, spending two hours creating a character can be boring and not really highlight the best part of the game, right, buddy? That's, that's very true. Uh, I've seen people say, okay, I'm willing to give this game a couple of hours. Then they sit down for two full hours and barely get through character creation, and they're wondering, why am I doing this? So for people like that, the best part of the game is the playing. So you want to give them a pre-gen and get them going. Now, on the completely other side of that coin, there are, there's a certain type of player who hates not understanding something completely. They hate being lost. They hate not understanding what they're looking at on the character sheet. And if you have that kind of player, it is much better to sit down for a couple of hours with them. Go through character creation, have them make the character they want, have them understand the different things that they're writing down on their character sheet, and that way when they get to the game, they are much more comfortable playing. So that's something that you need to decide as a teacher, what kind of person is this? Is this a person who is going to enjoy playing the game even though they might not understand it? Or are you dealing with the kind of person who wants to understand everything before they start playing the game? If you do start playing with pregens, you can do a few things to mitigate some problems. First of all, make the pregens as clear and easy to run as possible. Um, especially if your players are completely brand new and know nothing about the game. You don't want them having to hunt and search and try to ferret out complex concepts on the character sheet. You want to make everything as smooth as possible. And even if you are using a pre-gen, you might want to leave a couple spots blank and give the players a choice. This gives them a chance to contribute to the character, and it gives you the chance to quickly explain a concept. So for example, you might not pick every single skill that they are proficient with. You might leave them a choice. Even if that choice is, would you prefer to either be trained in history or religion? What that does is it gives them a chance to create at least one piece of their own character. Are they more interested in history or are they more interested in religion? And it gives you the chance to explain what proficiency means. You can say things that you're proficient in, you get a bonus plus two to that role when you use those skills. So this is the reason that you're making this choice. What do you think? That makes, I think that makes perfect sense. I, I, once again, it's, it's about, you know, knowing your audience, right? Like you're, you're basically trying to figure out how people want to learn. It gets really problematic though, when you have a mixed group like that. 
that is very, very true. Mixed groups are always the hardest because even if you know what you want to do, you A, have to keep the, uh, the players who know what they're doing entertained in some way, and mm-hmm. B, you might have the best strategy for teaching, and the other players who are experienced might have their own ideas of how to teach and interfere with your experience and interfere with your method of teaching, which can sometimes make the matters worse. It really can. It's a... Uh... I've seen it before. Like I, some people just check out when they don't really understand the rules. But th- there's a way to kind of do it together. Um, and I think you'll get to this when we talk about pregens. I like pregens that are sort of put together, but not completely put together. Mm-hmm. And if you know you're going to be teaching a new player at the same table as the experienced players, talk to the experienced players ahead of time. Give them tasks to do. Um, you know, if you trust them to teach because maybe they've taught more players than you have, then you can sit back and let them do their thing. Uh, and I've often done this because I've trusted the players to not just teach, but, but do a great job of entertaining and teaching at the same time. However, if you have a player who might be a know-it-all or someone who likes to tell people what's right rather than let the, you know, let the player make their own decisions, then you might want to take them aside ahead of time and say, listen, this is going to be a delicate teaching moment. I would prefer to do it. So if you could do X and Y, but let me do Z, then I think we can all get through this much much more quickly and easily. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I'm with you. Okay. I, I don't really have anything else to add to that. That's the problem. Okay. Like you, you covered pretty much everything. I was waiting for a fight, Chris. No, why? Why, why would I fight? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know because sometimes I'm wrong. It's happened that one time back in 1987. I remember it. Won't happen again though. I mean, sometimes there's times that I think that you're wrong when I'm really wrong and I fight with you anyway, but I can't really fight with you this time. I got nothing to say. Like, you, you covered that pretty pretty eloquently and masterfully. Cool. Then I will, I will forge ahead, Chris, and you can tell me if I'm wrong on this one. All right. The next big point is don't try to teach everything at, all at once. Um, it's all in caps in our notes, too, and there's a reason for that because it's bad. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have seen people go down the rabbit hole of tr- they try to explain one thing. And that triggers the next thing that, oh, since I've told you about this, I should also tell you about this. And then you explain that. And you're like, oh, and by the way, what I just said, it's always true except for this. And then you try. And by the time you get done going down this path of explanation, you're 30 minutes into a game and really haven't done anything yet. So, you know, unless your player is the one we described that needs to know everything ahead of time, play the game and teach at the correct moment. Find that teachable moment, keep it short and sweet, and then move on to the next thing. Keep Continue the game progressing. And, you know, I think we'll talk about this in a, in a few moments. Like, it's good to bring, if you know you're running a teaching-styled game, then it's good to bring an adventure that will help you teach the game. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, like, there's a thing with character sheets. Uh, I don't know if the D&D character sheets, the way that they are currently presented, are very good about presenting information to players so that they understand what's going on. I think it's a pretty decent character sheet, but I've I found a lot of people that don't know role-playing games get very confused by it. Yeah, I think that is a very good point. And I have yet to see a character sheet that can fulfill all uh, goals of containing the information in as small a space as possible while still being detailed enough to be clear while also being easy to use for 
new players and experienced players. It's just it's one of those design things that is very very difficult to pull off. Yeah, it really is. Uh, I mean, uh, that's why we have graphic designers in the world because it's about presenting information visually, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. So, I mean, I don't we don't really have to hang on this point very long, but like the most important part of your D&D game character, your character for your D&D game is your ability scores. Like that is I mean, arguably, that's the most important thing because that plus the um, the modifier, and really the modifier is the most important part because that's the thing that often gets added to the D20 roll plus some stuff. But that's the thing where it gets confusing, right? Like your proficiency modifier plus that modifier from your skills, from your stat makes things hard to present, right? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the concepts of 5e was going to be get rid of ability scores and just go with modifiers. Because, as you just said... How often do you actually use a score? You don't. I I can't. There may be one or two things, and I may even be conflating that with with fourth edition, um, where you actually use the ability score number for a purpose. You're always using the modifier, and so the the thought was, why even have the score if all you really use is the modifier? It's and true. They didn't want to upset Grognards who shake their fist and say but we've always had scores and scores are what i know so therefore we must have scores um and that's not necessarily a good reason or a bad reason to keep or to get rid of uh it's just that's that was the thought and they decided not to i'm i yeah i mean it's very D, right like having having ability scores and not just modifiers is a very D thing mm-hmm. uh, I, I mean i don't really have a problem with it it's just it's something that's very I think it's I, I actually kind of agree with the grognards in that case if you ask me but you know like keep the keep the scores it's very D&D there's plenty of other games that don't mm-hmm. sure <laughs> um it's not hurting anything I don't think except when it confuses people yeah uh, right. it, it is it is you're right man it's like a level okay I'm, I'm gonna have to like change my mind instantly here like it's one thing about it's it's tradition versus um usability usability right like because the usability part is just just put the modifier on there right. yeah and, and <laughs> that's all it is yeah and i mean once you get the point past people it usually only takes two or three explanations to say you know yes your strength is an 18 that really doesn't mean anything except you add four to any time you use your strength for something yeah. so you know you can finally get them to ignore the 18 and focus on the plus four but it's just that one more step that is possibly confusing to people yeah. So I mean, like that. Like once again, like we're talking about uh, presenting information. Like that is that is extra information that doesn't necessarily need to be there. So it can be confusing. And then there's like a, a, a how to present the information that is problematic, so that it is not um not easily understood on the sheet. So if any of you folks out there know of any character sheets that are really good about t- helping to teach and present information, let us know. I mean, right. I take it for granted because I can look at a character sheet and get it perfectly fine. But a lot of people not necess- that have never played before can't. Right. Sure. So let's talk about, Chris, let's talk about the premise of a game. Um, yes. You want, to, you want to talk about that? So I think it's important to make it clear what the players are supposed to be doing. So in Dungeons & Dragons, it's about exploring dangerous locations, going on adventures, killing monsters, and having conversations. Like, that covers the three premises, or the three pillars of play that they call in, in D&D. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, though, because we all know that D&D, D&D gets played a bunch of different ways, the game is very dependent on how you're going to sort of present that premise. Um, based on the style that you're trying to put out there as a ga- as a dungeon master, so it's very individualized after that. But that is the f- 
in my opinion, the four kind of basic things mm-hmm. that you're doing. If you're going to deviate from that, you really need to explain that. Yep. And, you know, on this point, one of the things that sometimes players have trouble with, depending on what their background in games in general is, is this idea of you can do anything. Um, you know, if you're if you have a new player who's played lots of video games, they kind of understand the idea of an RPG uh, because they've played you know Skyrim or whatever other game you want to come up with, where you can pretty much explore the world, and at some point you will run into trouble and then you will have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but some players come to the the table oh, have on, having only played board games or maybe not even any games. And so for some people, they cannot wrap their mind around the fact that they are this character and, and they can do anything they want. They kind of need that nudge in the right direction of what do I do next? And it's not a bad thing to limit those options and name them, as Chris is talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, let them know what they are supposed to be doing. Give them a clear goal and a clear path toward the end of that goal. Let them learn for, for themselves where they can deviate from that path, and they will gladly do so once they're comfortable. But if you just plop them down in the middle of a tavern and say, what do you do? That can be overwhelming for certain types of players. Also, not really the point of the game. This is true. You know, the, the game has an understanding that there is there are goals that the players are going to uh, try to achieve and they may not be goals that are just x leads to y leads to z those goals might come from the players but if you don't have the right type of player who can turn those goals on their character sheets into a story right away they're going to be a little lost so give them some help the idea is um for those who are wondering the idea is constrained creativity right we're putting people in a in a box that they can do anything inside of mm-hmm. within within the constraints of the box. That's that's the actual point. So you can't really do anything. You're doing stuff within a premise. That's mm-hmm. that's the point. Right. Um so so explaining that is important because then that gives people a good thing to hang their uh hang their coat on, I suppose. Hang their hang their game on, mm-hmm. hang their play on. Hang their play on. There we go. Found, there go. I found the right word. Um I think after that, then it's it's imperative to start teaching the core me- mechanics or mechanisms of the game and make sure they follow along with the premise of the game that you've presented. So like like I said in D&D, that basic thing, there's roll a d20 and add a modifier, mm-hmm. um, and then there's spend a resource to get an effect. Yep. Like, those are pretty much the two very, very, very basic, basic things. Right. I, I completely agree. So set a task ahead of them. Make it a task that's very easy uh, to, to visualize. You have to uh, walk across this narrow plank. This is going to be a dexterity check, and it is going to add... So you're going to roll d d20, you're going to add your dexterity modifier. You can also teach about proficiency then. There are certain things you are proficient in and certain things you are not. If you are proficient, you add your proficiency bonus, which at first level is plus two. If you can teach those three things, ability score d20 proficiency or not you've taught a good chunk of the game right there and then you can also teach that spending of resources to get an effect uh, which could be a spell which could be a hit die which could be 
anything that's a resource that the players will need to manage in the game. Because mm-hmm. those are really the two basic building blocks of everything in Dungeons & Dragons. Mm-hmm. Now, it, oh, go ahead. Um, I, I know that you want to talk about action economy. Mm-hmm. I think if we talk about um, the next section, which is an adventure to teach with, yep. which I have put together, there's a whole thing about combat and action economy in there. Do it. All right, cool. So I think the next thing, like a- after you've done those those few things that we just talked about, I think it's really a good time to start playing the game at that point. Um, because I think that through play, you can teach a lot better because then you have the examples right there that you can um, that you can provide along with the uh, the education. So you have, but you know how that works. And you, you've been a teacher, Sean. Uh, the, I don't know the you you. you present a concept you then have an example to go with that concept so it like kind of reinforces it and mm-hmm. you have the practical experience to go along with it it's almost like being in a lab if you want to talk about education yeah <laughs> from a from a from that point of view no, so yeah you definitely you want to say ahead of time what i'm going to be teaching you then actually teach it and then review it so you understand that they have understand what you taught mm-hmm. and this kind of like messes with that a little bit because sometimes i like to like once you get those kind of base core concepts of play down like what you're going to be doing then you can start playing the game and then while you're playing the game you can start expounding on some of those 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 other like slightly deeper concepts i suppose because like you said don't teach everything at once right mm-hmm. yep so i think it's great a great idea to bring an adventure to the table it teaches those core parts of the game or uh, reinforces those core parts of the game and how those mechanics interact with those parts mm-hmm. so what are our pillars our pillars are exploration interaction and uh combat right Mm-hmm. So, in my opinion, exploration interaction—they're looser parts of play, and they have a more conversational style than um, than combat, which is more rigid. And exploration interaction—they tend to use these the, these mechanics most often. They tend to use skill checks and saving throws. Yep. So, really, those are the those are the only mechanics that you really need to to be focused on when you are doing exploration interaction. Now, there are some abilities that are spend a resource to get an effect in there, like inspiration is one of them also gaining inspiration is one of them this might be a good time to bring that up um but those are the things that you'll be focusing on when you're doing that and then you should have encounters and moments that are about exploration and interaction um it's also a good place to start with in your play experience because they're the simpler mechanics because combat's a thing right like there's a lot more procedure to that and we'll talk about in a second but uh once you get through that like you should also like explain how or understand let the players understand that these parts of play have specific goals because then they can sort of get a feel for what they're doing inside of this kind of play and uh often it's gather information and overcoming obstacles um did i miss anything Uh, i think you're right on target chris cool so like gathering information is things like getting your quests figuring out what's dangerous about a location discovering pieces of information that help you move along to the next moment of play and overcoming obstacles is exactly what it sounds like it's either using your resources or your character abilities including you know your actual ability scores with the d20 roll to deal with obstacles and you want to have encounters that focus on that kind of stuff i mean like i said it's really good because getting your quest that's usually the first thing that you do so like you're talking to somebody having an interaction and then you can even say like oh he kind of has a weird uh, twitch when he's telling you this information that makes you think he's nervous about something. What do you do? And then they can be like, well, I, you know, I can, I can explore that further. I try to bring out more information out of him. I'm like, well, that sounds like a diplomacy or is it diplomacy? Insight. I think it's insight. Insight. Well, the in, I basically gave them the insight information for free, right? Right. 
that was mostly to prompt them. Like normally I wouldn't. Usually I would wait for the character to ask that, but it's a teaching game, right? Like I, uh, giving them that information will let them act. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you have to give a little bit to get some, right? Right. Yeah. So uh, sure, like the, the, but then like diplomacy or even intimidation if they want to be mean to them. Um, and then you can sort of play back and forth with those ideas and then explain like, okay, you're doing this in, 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 the, in the narrative, in the fiction. That's what you said you were doing. It's really this role. So, you know, roll the dice, add the modifier. Um, and this is what happens because of that. And you can actually explain like the result, like, oh, you rolled a 15. The DC was actually, difficulty check was actually a 15. So you've succeeded. Um, th- because you succeeded, you get more information. If you would have failed, I might have given you some information but I wouldn't have given you all the information or I might have said that you just can't quite understand. You can't quite get him to talk to you. Right. Like then you're explaining how stakes work. Sure. Yep. And then you can move on and yeah. do something else. I-, I like how you've laid it out here. And I really like the way that it was done in the lost minds of Fandelver. Um, if you remember that adventure, the first box text is back in the past, you were hired to do something by this person. Now you've been on the trail for a few days, you've had no trouble so far, but you come to this strange scene ahead of you where there is a wagon tipped over with some horses uh, that are dead, they've been shot by arrows, what do you do? You know, and, and the scene mm-hmm. is described. So now it's, you're not starting with combat, but you're starting with a a scene described where you can say, what do you do? So you're giving them options based on a specific, well-described scene. And as they look around, you can start calling for those skill checks, as Chris has been talking about. You can call for perception checks. You can call for medicine checks to deal with the horse. You can call for investigation checks to find the empty map case that's lying you know, off to the side of the road, etc. Um, so it's not starting... Uh, too loose, but it's not starting with throwing all the rules at everyone all at once. It's almost the cold open of any procedural like Law and Order show, right? Mm-hmm. Like, here's your scene, and here's your people at the scene learning stuff. Right, and most people are familiar either through television or through literature or through you know uh, computer games. This concept of investigating and, and looking around and looking for clues. Mm-hmm. And if um. If you can, it's really good to relate whatever they're doing to something like that that is widely known, like whatever the trope is, because that'll also help them latch onto what they should be doing mm-hmm. so that it's easier for you to then explain the rules because they already have in their head the concept of what's going on. So it's really about relations, like making making these these uh, these connections to things so that they can understand what they're supposed to be doing. That's part of the whole teaching process too. Sure. Um, so after that, after you get that kind of basis set, then we can talk about combat because combat is much more procedural, complex, and a very much tighter part of the game. Um, so there's more pieces because of that. So really combat is about initiative. So once you have initiative, then you've ordered everybody. So that's the first thing that you have to explain. Then when it's somebody's turn, um, it's all about action economy. And action economy is a thing in the game. Right, Sean? So like when your turn comes up, when it's your turn in the spotlight basically you get a move an action and a bonus action Mm -hmm. and um it 
you you have to kind of explain that. Uh, I think it's better if you can if you I think you should make sure that one of your NPCs goes first so you, that they can demonstrate before it's somebody else's turn. Yep. So, so I mean, give somebody a plus twenty to their initiative so that they go first so that you can just demonstrate all this stuff, yep. and then players can do it. Mm-hmm. And one important thing to teach is the bonus action because I've seen even players who have been around a while continually try to do something as a bonus action and you cannot do anything as a bonus action unless you have a specific spell or ability that allows you to take that bonus action Mm -hmm. Um, so you know that's just one thing to get across because people i've seen players try to continually use a bonus action when there's nothing for them to use it on what is a what is a bonus action that everybody has access to? I can't remember. The only one that everyone really has access to is if you wield a uh, light weapon in your offhand, you can use that to make an attack when you attack regularly with the uh, with the other hand. All right, um, that, that is, would be the that, that would be is, the first thing that I would show off from an NPC. Right. Uh, so yeah, that's the only thing. Um. I might also, with my characters, um, demonstrate some of the other action types that are that are present, like attack as an action, dash as an action. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the other? Aid another as an action. Yeah. Help. Um, or the. It's. Yeah, the aid. I think it's called help. It's called help or aid yeah. or whatever it's called. Yeah. Oh. I was sorry. I, I play a lot of games. I get some of the terms mixed up. I, I apologize, everybody. No, it's okay. Uh, disengage is one, and I forgot the one where you basically take a full defensive action um, to give everyone a disadvantage against attacking you. I don't remember the specific name of it, but yeah. So you should like as a game master, dungeon master, trying to teach all this stuff, have that list down and make sure that you go through all of them and check them off. Like, even if it's not like the most tactically sound thing to do, like you're not here to be tactical. You're here to educate. So make sure you have your checklist so that you're going through and making sure that your player, your bad guys are always doing all these things. Your NPCs are doing these things so that you can demonstrate. I couldn't agree more, Chris. All right. And then make sure you find a way to have a reaction at some point in time, because reactions are a thing in the game and it's not a thing that always happens. Yeah. And reactions are similar to bonus actions in that they can only happen if you have something that allows you or something happens to allow you to take that reaction. A um, couple places that people get confused on, um, you can take a reaction on your own turn if something triggers that. That was different in 4th edition, but it is true of 5th. Um, including casting Counterspell. You can cast Counterspell on your own turn, um, even though that seems counterintuitive. Yeah, it um, does. Opportunity attacks are reactions that you can always take if a creature that you're fighting leaves your threatened area with a move action without disengaging first. Yes, with their move action, yes. not from forced movement. Correct. But th- that is a thing that is easily demonstrated because you can have one of your NPCs leave the threatened areas of, an, of a yep. PC and be like, look, you have this thing called a reaction. Mm-hmm. You can... You can one of the types of reactions you can have is an opportunity attack. So it's like reaction is a category. Opportunity attack is within the reactions. Like there are other reactions that you can take, but opportunity attack is one of them. You can attack this person when they do that, but you can only do it once until your turn comes back around. Correct. And that's, that's once, once again, like giving them an option Mm -hmm. by moving that, that NPC away and saying, here's the thing 
teach teaching the thing through play. Yep, and like Chris said, we can't emphasize this enough. Demonstrate this using your monsters and your NPCs. Show the players before they have a chance to do it what happens if it when it happens, so mm-hmm. they can see that if I move away, this is going to happen because I was able to do it to someone else. Yeah, and understand that your goal when doing this in in this kind of play is not to provide challenge, not to even necessarily tell a, a complete and totally compelling story. Like hopefully you do that also, but your primary goal is to educate. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to just get these concepts across. Yes. That is then then later, like once they start getting a grasp of the concepts, you can be a little more tactical and show them a little bit more of the challenge side of play and a little bit more of the storytelling side of play. But the initial thing is to educate. Right. And you can educate quickly and in a fun way, narratively um, still, you can do all of those. You can do all of the above. Because if the goblins run away in that first combat, it's no skin off anyone's teeth if they die. Um, you're, 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 you're making everything move faster, which is generally better. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, don't be afraid. It's, you're not being judged on how many PCs you kill. Uh, you're being judged on how well you're teaching. That's correct. Um, it's also in my opinion, very important to let the players know the goals of combat too and how they can be different for different combats. Like a goal is stay alive. A goal is defeat your enemies. And then another goal is achieving whatever the secondary goals are and explaining that like, oh, look, there's a ritual going on over here that could cause something bad to happen. You can deal with that, but there's also a fight going on. And then like that is a secondary goal. Like it is something else that is going on in the middle of a fight. Now I wouldn't do that in the first combat or the second combat, but maybe the third combat is when you want to throw that one out there to, to demonstrate that that is a way that play can proceed. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that's the idea. Like you, you want to demonstrate these different varieties. Like, and like Sean said, like that goblin running away thing, it's a great thing because you can demonstrate opportunity attacks and disengaging in that same encounter. Right. And how to track someone if the goblin gets away. Um, yep. Uh, movement, how you know how movement can be used during combat and outside of combat. All those things can mm-hmm. then can then be taught because of the consequences of the one goblin running away. Absolutely. Um, the last thing I want to talk about when it comes to teaching the game is probably the most um, most bookkeeping heavy thing and the thing that makes people cringe when it comes to new players, which is magic. Because magic is a resource management part of the game, and it does a lot to make the game more difficult to teach, especially to new players. Mm -hmm. Because it's a whole, like, this is the resource management part of the game turned up to what its highest dial is of 10, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. Because you now have things called spell slots, you have memorized spells, and you have spells known. You also have two different kinds of spells. You have cantrips, and you have slotted spells. And then there's another mechanic on top of that called concentration. Right. So teaching all of that stuff is also tricky. Like, like those are concepts that you have to like sort of explain before they use them in a lot of ways. Although it's not so hard with low level casters, right? Because you only have so many spells. So you, this is another place like where it, if you were teaching the game, it pays to have a couple of different sheets together for those characters as pregens that says like, look. Here's your spell slots and leave it blank. In my opinion, this is the way that you do it. And every time you cast a spell, write it in that spell slot because that means you can't use that spell slot anymore. You're basically filling up your cups. Mm -hmm. Um, Spells memorized, like here's all the spells that you can actually cast uh, and then have descriptions next to them, hopefully, so that they don't have to go flipping through the book form, which is great. 
Um, here's all your spells known. We don't really care about that for... Well, you don't even have to do that. Screw that for this. Like, you don't need to do that if it's just teaching a one-shot, right? That's a, The spells known things if you're playing a campaign and you need to educate somebody about the game later. So spells known, just leave it off if it's for, for a, the first time that you're teaching the game and somebody wants to play a wizard. Yep. Um, but then you need to under explain to them cantrips. Like, okay, look, these are spells that you can cast all the time, but they never get put into these cups over here when you cast them. Um, and then if there's any concentration spells, like, make sure they're labeled. Be like, look, these spells, these kinds of spells, you can cast them, but if you ever cast them, give them a marker. Um, if you ever cast them, put this marker on top of that spell description because they can, you, if you ever cast a spell that is the other kind, that, if you ever cast a spell that is also one of these kinds of spells, you can't have them both going at the same time. So you have to move that marker to the other spell. Mm-hmm. That way there's a visual representation of what they're concentrating on. Absolutely. So those are, those are my tips for teaching magic to, for people who want to play magic users. Yep. My, my tip is very similar to Chris's. It is when you run a first combat, just allow cantrips. Don't even sure. Don't even show them slotted spells yet. After that first uh, combat, when they get used to casting cantrips, then you can say you can do that all the time, constantly with those spells. These spells are a little more powerful generally, and they they fit uh, into a different kind of category. And then write the adventure so. It makes sense for them to use one of their first level spells mm-hmm. to solve a problem. Maybe Unseen Servant, maybe Fog Cloud. Put that on their sheet and give them the perfect opportunity to use it so then they can understand, okay, I just cast that spell. I have to check it off. I have to check that slot off. Now, I could cast it again because I still have slots remaining, but that one slot that I just used is gone. And if it's a concentration spell, do exactly what Chris said. Make them mark it so they know that they are concentrating on it, and that's something that could be lost or could be replaced if they cast another concentration spell. Absolutely. Um, Last little side thing, I suppose. Eventually, as you're playing the game, the player character might try to do something that does not necessarily fit exactly into the rules, where we get into the rulings, not rules part of the game. And that's where you need to explain, like, Yes, you can totally do this thing. It doesn't exactly fit into the rules the rules as they are written, but this game is allows us for improvisation. Now, then you have to explain how you deal with improvisation and explain that it might not be the same at every table. Mm-hmm. Like, that is an important thing for people that are playing the game to understand. Like, look, I'm trying to do this thing where I'm going to make you make a skill check at a certain level or make you spend a resource in order to accomplish the thing that you're trying to accomplish or even try to accomplish the thing that you're trying to accomplish and there are stakes. Like, if you succeed, you get this. If you fail, a thing will happen. Mm-hmm. And that's how I handle it. That might not be how everybody handles it. That way you've set expectations. And setting expectations is very, very important for role-playing games. Yeah. No, I, I think that's it. I, I think now you're getting into more of the ongoing game, uh, which I think is still important to talk about. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think we've set down some of the pitfalls, some of the most important things you need to think about when you teach. Absolutely. And that's our episode on uh, teaching the rules of D&D. All right. Well, uh, thank you everyone so much for listening. Let's do a few Patreon shout-outs. Uh, it's, it's some of the, the members of the, the misdirected Mark Court. 
our, our high court. Uh, Rob Whitaker, the Marshal of the Mark. Uh, John Smith, the Duke of the Workshop. Uh, Wayne Polidian Chan, the Duke of the Darkest Sons. Eric Bonst, the Duke of Gators. Eric Jeppesen, the Lord of Endurance. Uh, Steve Farrell, the Knight of Lairs. Sean Gilligore, the Knight of All Edges. Craig Just Craig, the Lord of One Name. Jared Rasher, the Scribe of MMP. And Eileen Barnes, the Duchess of Pandas Talking, Talking Games. And uh, pandas and talking games. Sorry, Eileen. Uh, speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of Down with D and D, you can click on the link to our Patreon page uh, on the website. And for two dollars a month, you can get yourself a shout out. Or for four dollars a month, you not only get a shout out, but you also get a glance at our pre-production show notes. And we invite all people who give four dollars a month to the Misdirected Mark Slack channel, where you can chat with all of the hosts. Mm-hmm. Or more, if you want to give us more. Like, if you if you, if you go to 10, you get one of those fancy titles and some other stuff. Ooh, I want a title. Yeah, like Whirlwind Millionaire. Like, we just released that to all of our patrons. Oh, so, great. the print and play version. Yeah. By the way, that's the game of uh, if you won the lottery, how would it go after that? Mm-hmm. It's a solo RPG. You can pick it up on DriveThruRPG. Anyways, if you can't help us monetarily, but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with an Apple Podcast review. Those reviews help, even if you're not listening via Apple Podcasts, since many other podcatchers use Apple Podcasts as their way to rate and rank shows, and it would make us more visible. We would also appreciate it if you would mention us on your social media outlets and tell everyone that you've been listening and that you enjoy the show. Yes, so that would be very nice and helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, Sean, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin, where I do most of my damage. But you can also go on the Downward D&D G Plus community. Let us know what you've been thinking about in terms of gaming, especially if you have been teaching games. We'd love to hear what you do to teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can hit me up, the network Twitter is at MisdirectedMark. That's where I do most of my damage on Twitter. Or you can just go to the website. Where you and leave a comment, which I tend to respond to those. And you can catch other great shows such as this one, Hobbs and Friends of the OSR. Hobbs gets together with various friends from the OSR where they talk about the games they play, a little about themselves, some OSR-related topic, and sometimes the state of the OSR, where Hobbs puts down his Mr. Rogers persona and gets all opinionated. Get old school with Hobbs and Friends of the OSR. Down with the Indie is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Sean, what are we going to do now? We're going to go kill some monsters. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? This whole party. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? This whole party.